Hello and welcome to the Travelling Ergonomist podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Angra, and my job as an ergonomics consultant is to educate people on how to get their bodies into neutral postures. And in today's professional world, with the prominence of agile and remote working, ergonomics is more important than ever. So sit back, relax, and let's navigate the workplace together. After a couple of technical glitches and loss of power, I'm so glad we managed to get Andrew Thatcher onto the podcast. Andrew is a professor and chair of organisational psychology at the University of Witwatersrand. He is currently president of the Ergonomic Society of South Africa and chair of the IEA's Sustainable Development Technical Committee. His research interests are on well-being and productivity in green buildings, the psychological factors in the adoption of sustainable technologies, and the theoretical development of human factors and sustainability. Andrew was the first person in South Africa to evaluate well-being and effectiveness in green buildings. He currently has several green building projects at various stages of maturity, including studies looking at the impact of plants in the workplace, appropriate workplace layout and assessing productivity in green buildings. He currently sits on the World Green Building Council Technical Working Group, looking at office metrics for well-being and effectiveness in green buildings. So as you can probably tell, he has a wealth of knowledge and is deeply passionate about human factors and sustainability. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Backer Alkaizen, who specialize in developing high-end ergonomic hard and software solutions that contribute to the physical and mental well-being of computer users. Their innovative solutions encourage employees to achieve better wellness at work, become more productive, adopt healthy postures, and alternate between them to increase movement. They're a great brand, and I've seen firsthand how important employee wellness is to them. Perhaps you could just um, give us a bit of background to your career and and what you've been up to and how you've got to this point. Sure, that's that's an easy question to start off with. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm a professor at, uh, of psychology or organizational psychology at um, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, and I started my career... Uh, all my degrees are actually in organizational psychology, um, but my specialization has been ergonomics and cognitive ergonomics in particular. Uh, and I used to do a lot of work with um, working with uh, sort of human-computer interaction. Uh, that's been my, that was for many years was, was what I was focusing on, looking at all sorts of things like uh, human interactions with mobile technologies um, and with, um, you know, the internet as the internet was sort of, uh, slowly becoming a thing. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, I changed all of that. I got really bored and frustrated with doing research only on, uh, on technology because the technology kept on changing all the time. And by the time you, you did your research on that, um, usually the technology had moved on and the type of work you were doing was, was obsolete. Um, and at the time, um, I was thinking very hard about the work that I really wanted to do. Um, and, it, and it struck me that the work I really wanted, I was really interested in was understanding things about um, sustainability and sustainable technology. Um, it's my fervent belief that uh, the type of world that we are creating for ourselves is both unequal and incredibly filthy. Uh, particularly for the environment, and that it struck me that as 
someone who's interested in human factors and ergonomics and the core principle about what we're talking about, which is about well-being, health and effectiveness, was actually not being achieved by, by living the types of lives which we were living in. So um, I changed around about 2008 and started wow. to produce my first conference paper um, looking at this. And my work slowly evolved to look less at individual systems and to look more at the, the complex interactions between um, the types of systems that we build, create, adapt, design in human factors and ergonomics and how it integrates with, the, with larger systems. Um, I suppose you might think of it as a scaling problem. Um, so the question might be, let's say we, we come up with a really great idea for, a, for a, um, an energy-efficient appliance. Um, if one person uses that appliance, we haven't saved any electricity. Uh, we haven't saved any energy across the planet. Um, and so we have to think about how this scales up to larger, um, to larger scales of, of, of influence. Uh, and that involves thinking about things in a, in a much more systemic way. And also just the issue of sustainability really speaks to the idea of, um, of systemic influences because we're talking about things largely on a global scale rather than at a, a local scale. We need to think about how these things influence one another. So, for example, a change in one part of the world has a, might have a, a, a knock-on effect in another part of the world. Uh, a simple example of that might be, um, uh, for example, as, as, as companies move uh, utilities, let's say, for example, in Europe um, or North America, move further and more and more away from coal-fired power stations, it means that places which have lots of coal um, are going to potentially lose jobs. So, uh, so we have to try to balance these things out with one another. Um, usually the places where the power stations are are not, not necessarily the places which have lots of coal in this example. So we have to think about how we, how we manage this across, uh, across large geographical and complex systems um, uh, locations. So your turn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm kind of blown away by all of that because it's, that's a very macro way of looking at the world, I guess. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on how you even start managing something like that. Okay, that's, uh, that's also relatively easy to, to focus on. Um, we are, after all, a discipline of human factors and ergonomics, and so what we should be doing is looking at focusing on the human beings in the system. Um, while there are lots and lots of other elements in the system um, that we need to take into account, what we should be doing is focusing on the humans and how the humans interact with these other elements or how these other elements interact with the human beings. Uh, what's really difficult about it is that it starts taking us into areas which many human factor specialists will feel very uncomfortable about. So things like politics, um, ethics, and the philosophy of the situation. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, also taking us out into some of the other social sciences that we're not familiar with, in particular, large group functioning. Um, but... Uh, We've developed or are in the process of developing various different tools to help us understand where our role will be as well as how we can influence uh, other processes. 
Uh, so, for example, people like Dave Moore in, um, in New Zealand have been working with these types of systems uh, largely at community levels uh, for a number of years now, for more than, for more than seven or eight years. Um, and they've uh, developed an influence uh, or at least an understanding of how we might influence these types of processes. Okay. I think what we bring as human factors as uh, professionals is, is, is an idea about how the humans fit into the system and what humans need to be effective, healthy, and, um, and well. And from your perspective, what do humans need? Um, the <laughs> too, too many, probably too many things. And, and uh, I think, I think what, we have, what we have to do, first of all, here is separate out what humans need uh, from what humans want. Yes. Um, that's, and that's an important distinction to make. Um, I think the most important thing that, that humans need in this situation, other than basic needs, um, so the very basic needs for to make sure that you have uh, water, shelter, food. Uh, beyond that, the most important thing is equality, um, and that is to be treated equally. And, and that's very often what is missing from, from these types of discussions and debates is that when we make a decision to go in one particular way, it means that somebody else's equal rights are very often uh, violated. Uh, and so what you have to take into account is, is, uh, is, is some understanding about what this equality means. In particular, and this is where it gets very uncomfortable for many people working in human factors and ergonomics, it means taking a much more ethical stance than we do now. At the moment, we consider our client to be the sole arbiter of what is equal, uh, <laughs> And, and not the whole system and understanding of what is equal to the whole system. So we tend to think of equality in terms of what our client will pay us um, or reward us rather than what the system actually needs to, to be functional and sustainable. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on that front, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's difficult. It's easy for me to say here when... Um, when I don't have to, working at a university where I don't have to rely on the income of, uh, of, of my, from my clients. So I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware that that is a, I'm in a very privileged position to make that statement and that many consultants and practitioners working in these areas have to rely on what the client uh, determines for them. Um, and I think maybe what it means is us as human factors professionals, maybe we need to bring these things to, to light of the, um, of, of the clients that we serve. Definitely. Well, well, I think, I mean, I guess as professionals and practitioners, our job really is to challenge the client's thought process and, and take them in a direction that maybe they hadn't even thought of. Do you not think that, or do you think that we're still uh, no, being? I, I, I think that's a wonderful um, open view, um, <laughs> and, and, and in my view, uh, in my opinion, an, an enlightened view. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's common for for many human factors and ergonomics consultants and professionals to think in that way. Um, mm. So I think you're thinking in a very enlightened way. Um, I think. Many professionals are, are reliant entirely on what are the client's parameters. So very often a, 
what will happen, the types of things. And, and you started off the conversation a bit earlier talking about this. These problems are very big and very often a client will bulk at the size when, of, of the, the types of influences that they might be looking at and say, oh, no, that's way beyond the scope of, of what I've asked you to look at. Um, and so I think it can be quite difficult to convince clients to take these things into account. Oh, absolutely. I think clients probably still are thinking on a micro level, like you were talking about before, and not looking at the bigger macro picture. And as ergonomists, I think that's surely what we can bring to the table, that more systems thinking. And Well, we, we, we can and we, we can and we should. Um, and, there's, uh, and, you know, uh, we've, we've talked so far about all the negative things that can happen, but there's also lots of win-win situations here. Um, so we've talked about how we might take things into account so that we don't damage someone else um, or someone else's uh, human rights. Um, but there are also situations where when we do things, we can enhance people's human rights or by doing something else in another part of the system, we enhance the, the human rights of the people that we're trying to influence. Um, so I think we should think about this as both positive and negative ways um, and, and actually looking for win-win situations. You're, you're right. I think I don't think a lot of people think that way when it comes to ergonomics, and certainly in the f- the field that I work in, which is more physical ergonomics and workplace, um, that environment, ergonomists are still thought of as people who are going to come in and change the whole world. And it's going to cost a lot of money. When in actual fact, yes, it might cost a bit of money to get us involved, but if we're in in uh, in front of that process or part of that process very early on, then actually we can save money for the client and enhance the performance of people and, and better their comfort and health. Wonderful. Let me, let me give you a, let me actually give you a, an example within the, within the field of physical ergonomics. Uh, one of the clients uh, which we were working with, we're looking at um, designing a green building um, that takes into account things like how much energy the building is using as well as, uh, issues like the health and the well-being and the comfort of the people inside the building. Yeah. And one of the things we have to look at, I mean, this is a classic, if we think about this, this is a classic physical ergonomics and a, and, and a layout um, as well as things like environmental ergonomics, um, you know, thinking about lighting and, um, and fresh air and, and all of these types of things which make life comfortable for, for people working in the building. And one of the one win-win situations in here is about where do you place the stairs in relation to the lifts? Um, and here's a very simple, sim- very simple win-win situation. If you place the stairs where it is easier for people to access, people are more likely to use the stairs. Not only does this save you electricity, because now you don't have to use the lifts as often as you would be using before, but also you enhance people's health because you're getting them to move to walk upstairs and to, and to enhance their physical health. So by thinking creatively around these solutions, you actually get a win-win for everybody. You save electricity to the environment, you're saving money for the organization, you're creating healthier employees, which also should, in theory anyway, work harder for the employer. Oh, absolutely. Def- I completely agree. And I, when, so, so that does work well when we're building new buildings and building new offices, but what is your experience with offices that have already been created? You know, they're, they're already working and they've got 
businesses inside them? How do we go, basically, how do we refurb that office to have that well, same mindset? I have to say, one of the really good things about most of the office buildings now uh, that, that, that people are working in at the moment is most of them were probably built post-1960s. Um, and uh, okay, may, maybe not in maybe not in many of the older cities in in the UK, um, but but certainly in, in most types of office space. And, and the one advantage of the office space that was built post nineteen sixties is it tended to be very open plan. Now, while open plan might not necessarily work for every single type of work and working environment, it is very flexible. So it gives you lots of opportunities to change things. Um, there aren't walls that need to be broken down that, that could create structural problems for the buildings, for example. And so this gives you a great deal of flexibility to work within, within these types of environments. Um, what they do tend to do is, uh, is they tend to hide some of the features which, um, which we were used to exposing to, to create uh, more modern types of working environments. So sometimes what this does is it involves... Um, unhiding, revealing these types of um, things. So, for example, staircases tended to get hit, hidden into the corners of the building or into uh, rather than in, in, in the central place where we can find them very easily. But those are things that are actually quite easy to change in a retrofit. Yeah, I mean, you, you, we can signpost places as well. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Signage, uh, just office design, office flow. Um, rather than just thinking about the, the workstation itself, but looking at things like workstation flow and work, workspace flow, um, it, it gives us a lot more flexibility to think about these things. Absolutely. So, Andrew, you also, you talk a lot. To, I've seen your keynote presentations around the world, actually, in Australia um, and, and elsewhere, and you, you talk a lot about green ergonomics. Can you Describe what that means to people who may not have heard of it before. So, so yes, that's that's kind of quite easy. One of the things uh, it's oh, seven or eight years old now. The idea about green ergonomics has a much more nature focus to it. So, it talks about uh, two types of relationships: the relationship that human beings have as as custodians of nature to make sure that we enhance and facilitate and don't destroy nature. Uh, and the second relationship is the feedback mechanism from that, and that is what we can learn from our relationships with nature um, and the types of en enhancing uh, capabilities that nature has for the type of work that we do. So it is a, it is a reciprocal relationship between us doing things that don't destroy nature and in return nature giving us something back um, that we very often destroy and we miss in the, in the types of uh, cities and urban environments in particular that we create. And how, uh, do we, how do we start to implement green ergonomics effectively in cities, in urban design, in workplaces? I mean, I think the first thing is just to understand how these reciprocal relationships or demonstrate how these reciprocal relationships work. So, for example, uh, the work of Miles Richardson up at uh, Derby University is, is a good example. Um, Miles and his, his team across a number of different universities have been looking at how nature, or at least immersion in nature, has positive psychological and physical benefits for people. 
Um, and so that's, that's a nice way of starting. That's why I use it as an example. So when we understand, for example, that, that uh, our immersion in natural environments has a great deal of restorative um, and particularly psychological restorative benefits, then we can look at how do we find ways to get nature into our, into our working environments and into our living environments. Um, that could be done simply through things like um, what is the impact of, of bringing plants into the workplace. Um, and when we start understanding these types of connections, we can also then look at, uh, it then becomes a feedback mechanism of turning around and saying, uh, let's, let us do something that doesn't destroy uh, the thing which actually benefits us, which is in this case over here is nature. Yes. So that's one way around of doing it. The other way around of doing it is, is, to, is to build off our, our current um, very strong sustainability uh, agenda that we already have at the moment. Let's say um, particularly in places like Europe and North America, it's about energy and energy saving. Uh, but really that's a, but that's a, that's a, a nature question too. Um, it is about making sure that we, that the types of, uh, technical systems and social, social technical systems that we develop are not damaging to the things that, we, that actually create a benefit for us. Simple thing. Um, we can't live without oxygen. Well, we can for uh, two or three minutes maybe. Um, <laughs> but, um, but if we constantly are destroying the things which provide us with oxygen, um, then we're actually just damaging ourselves. And it is about creating technologies um, and behaviours that help enhance uh, our natural environment. So do you think that's one of the most important things or do you think that's a priority we should be focusing on when it comes to our world, I guess? Is that... Is well, that's a, that, that's a leading question for me because, of course, <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Um, I, uh, because, I mean, for, for me, it's an existential question. Um, just in the way in which I speak about this, these are existential issues. We yeah. cannot survive unless we have the resources to be able to do that. And, and, in, and the, our key important resources are water, food, air. Mm-hmm. Without these, without these three components, we we can't and shelter. I suppose I would throw it, I would throw in that too. Um, without those, the, without those four components, we can't survive. Um, and uh, we haven't yet worked out how to manufacture many of these things uh, yet. We can't manufacture air um, out of nothing. We need the we need the raw materials to do that. Um, so, in and, in that sense, then, what are you? What are you doing or what is your research looking at that's going to help us with those things? Yeah, so I, I approach this from, from, all, from all angles. So um, at the moment I have uh, research projects uh, with a company called Execuflora and we're looking at uh, the role of plants in the workplace. So that's the one way which, which, we're, which we're looking at things. Research is, is, is demonstrating um, some confusing results. Um, so, for example, in, in a laboratory environment, when we highly control the work environment, we find that plants uh, improve work performance and create psychological restoration. When we do these same experiments in a, in a real work situation, we find that um, these effects get swamped by um, various different types of workplace um, interactions and particularly particularly 
work performance is more highly affected affected by uh, managers and super supervisory practices than by clients. So what we find is poor uh, supervisory and management practices tend to wipe out the performance effects we see from bringing plants into the work environment. So we can't see the plant plants in isolation of the other types of of organizational ergonomics that, are, that take place in, in, in workplaces. And the second thing we're looking at is, uh, is looking at the effects of uh, technology and technology developments and how we can get people to adopt more sustainable technologies. Um, so one of the projects, for example, we're looking at is um, here in South Africa is looking at why people don't have um, solar geysers. Uh, in a country such as South Africa, which uh, it makes complete sense to have solar geysers because we have so much sun, uh, but people don't have uh, solar geysers because they are seen as one of two things. They are seen either as um, really expensive to implement if you're buying them yourself, and that is true. Uh, the cost of a solar geyser is about four times more of the initial outlay than buying a, an electric geyser. Wow. So there is a bulk at that price to, to start off with. Um, but your payoff on that is probably about two and a half to three years. So um, the amount of electricity savings that you'll make means that you will actually pay off that additional cost um, in about two and a half to three years. And after that, you'll just be making roughly about a 50% saving on your electricity costs. So it is about how do we convey this thing to people. The other, the other side of that as well is that um, with all the low-cost housing, for uh, particularly for poor people and, and people without, uh, without employment, um, the, the government solution has, to be in, has been to install solar geysers into low-cost housing. And what that has had is an, an effect on people who can afford to buy um, solar geysers is that they see it as something that poor people have. So there's, there's, it creates this uh, social, uh, social dynamic uh, which means that, you know, I, I mustn't have a solar geyser because it's actually for poor people to have solar geysers. So we've got these two different um, mm. dynamics that are, that are at play. And then at the higher end of the scale, um, uh, uh, we've also been looking at uh, developing across a number of different actors, both in the UK and in Australia um, and in the US and in Malaysia, now I'm thinking about it, we're looking at developing um, models for human factors and ergonomics that will help us understand where we might intervene in the, in, in the various different types of systems. So the model which uh, myself and Paul Yao from Malaysia have, have created is called the Sustainable Systems of Systems Approach, um, and that's creating uh, our systems understanding diagrams so that we can then apply these to socio-technical systems tools um, and to identify different places where the human factors and ergonomist can intervene in, in, in the systems. So it's okay. not saying we can intervene everywhere. It's just trying to identify places where we, can, where we can intervene and also understanding about when we intervene at these various different stages, what does it mean? What can we do? Um, how long can we expect our interventions to, to take hold? Um, or what types of resistances can we expect at the various different levels? And are you seeing a difference? You obviously travel quite a lot. Um, do, you, do you notice a difference country by country in terms of the socio-technical side of things? Are, are people doing things better or worse, or do they have a better 
mindset? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I, I think the, the one thing I have noticed is that where people start noticing resource constraints is where they start uh, is where they start more actively participating in this process. So what you what you what you end up seeing is the best examples of um, of how we can go about creating a more sustainable world actually come from areas which are resource constrained uh, rather than places which um, have lots of resources. Now, this might seem counterintuitive because places like Germany, for example, have really excellent uh, solar energy and and solar heating capabilities, which is quite surprising considering how much sun they have. (laughs) So there are... um, there are exceptions to this. Um, so I think you see two different types of phenomena happening. You see people getting really creative when they are resource constrained. Uh, and then you see other countries which are resource rich, but also see a moral obligation to, to change things. Um, so I think Europe is, is good in this, uh, in this regard. And I specifically exclude Britain from this argument, um, not because they're not still part of Europe. Um, <laughs> when you post this podcast, they may or may not still be in, in, in Europe. Um, but because uh, I think uh, the, the two um, people or countries, I should say, which are really poor in this regard, in fact, three countries um, which are really poor in this regard are Australia um, the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, I think uh, they have great opportunities which have been lost. They're also uh, some of the places where human factors and ergonomics has this, has its strongest hold. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work which we as economists have to do to, to change the, the thinking of the United States and the UK in particular to be on the same trajectory as the rest of the world. So why are those three countries not doing as well? Good question. No idea. Um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think part of it is a is a um, is that they are facing human resources constraints of their own. Okay. Uh, and their their response is 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 a bit of a head in the sand. Um, they are focusing on purely on uh, a very insular type of um, nationalistic way of looking at things. <laughs> Um, which is quite insular. So, for example, these are three countries which are also known for uh, being very poor towards uh, refugees, for example. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and I think these issues are not separate. They're related to one another. I don't know this for sure because I haven't studied this, but that, that would be my sense of, what I'm ex- of, of how I see it. I, I see these issues as, as, as converging rather than, rather than being... Uh, so, sorry, let me say that again. There are several issues that are converging rather than there being a single cause. Okay. And so who else is studying or looking at this topic apart from you? Um, if wow. anybody. Yeah, no, there are lots of people. So... Um, <laughs> So we, we have a we have a group called um, a technical committee of the International Economics Association called Human Factors uh, and Sustainable Development. Okay. Um, and there are various people. So if I just uh, start throwing out some names from the UK, 
There are people like um, uh, Miles Richardson, who I've already mentioned, and uh, Patrick Watterson at Loughborough University. Um, there are also uh, practitioners, uh, people like Robin Hancock, who's working with the Schumacher Institute, uh, and Margaret Hansen, who has her own consultancy based out of Edinburgh called Works Out. Um, so there are people in the UK that are doing this across um Across Europe, there are several groups in France um, that are working on problems in this way. They've actually established a, um, a special uh, interest group uh, with, uh, with the French Ergonomic Society, which looks at sustainable development. Uh, their work is primarily looking at uh, sustainable farming um, and also s- sustainable energy systems. Um, There are a group of people in Germany, uh, two sets doing some work. There is uh, Klaus uh, Zink's work down at uh, the University at Kauselauten. They are looking at sustainable work systems, in particular looking at the issues of uh, transnationality of of work systems. And then there is uh, Thomas Frank up in, um, uh, oh gosh, Lübeck University, and he's looking at uh, sustainable mobility, in particular electric vehicles and adoption of electric vehicles. There are a group of people in Sweden that are also looking at uh, recycling and recycling jobs, um, as well as uh, understanding sustainable work systems. Uh, Cecilia Berlin at uh, uh, Gothenburg University is someone who springs to mind. Um, across uh, across Poland, there are people working on sustainability and and the built environment. Um, And then if I move across to Asia, um, my colleague um, Paul Yao in Malaysia is working on uh, responsible consumption of of computing technology. Um, There are also uh, people across in Brazil that are looking at creating sustainable organizations um, Claudia Bernaro um, and uh, Lerti Snellar and, and Ivan Bolas. Uh, most of them are based out of Sao Paulo. There's a great group of people uh, doing work on sustainable design in, 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 in Colombia at the U- National University of Bogota and the University of Javeriana. Uh, uh, both, in, both of those are in Bogota. Okay. Uh, in the United States, there are also some people uh, working or be starting to work on this. And there's also a group working in Canada. So just one or two more people then? Just a, just a few more people. The <laughs> <laughs> Sustainable Development Technical Committee has, uh, has 78 members so far. Not, and not all of the people that I've mentioned are actually members of that uh, technical committee. Um, but I've been trying to follow and, and keep track of the people um, that are doing this. So, just uh, earlier this week, I came across a group of people in Spain who are also starting to work in this area. So it's growing. Well, that's great to hear. Um, I know I, you noted that yeah, there was a couple of those names that deal more so with sustainability in the built environment and with design. Um, I still probably, even the corporates that I work with, don't think we're doing a good enough job. And clearly we're not. I'm based in the UK at the moment. Um yep. 
who should be, who should be looking at this first of all um if if someone or a company is moving offices or building a brand new building for their employees who should be looking more into this and how do we go about doing that so if you're if you're working in the UK um there are two organizations that uh, that that are linked to one another that have uh, that have work in this area the first one is an organization called Briam um, which is the uh, which is the organisation which does the rating the green building rating systems, and the second one is something which is called the Well Institute, which looks at health and wellness in in um, in the built environment. Okay. Both of them have presence in the UK, um, and both of them have credits associated with uh, with green building, um, and so if. If an employer wants to have their building rated as a as a green building, one of the ways in which they can get credits is is through ergonomics credits, um, and so that's that's a that's an in. I see that as a I see that as an entry point, um, and so once you've got the entry point, you can then start looking at things like uh, energy and energy efficiency. It's uh, so, for example, one of the things we found in green buildings is that. Um, is that you need to look at how you can make uh, the temperature more comfortable for people. But people are being the people that they are. They start playing around with the system. And so it's comfortable for some people and uncomfortable for other people. And so we can start looking at the behavioral elements and the behavioral interactions with green buildings. Um, And so these types of organizations are an entry point for us to make a much larger contribution. What do you say to people then that, so I, I know of Briam and Well myself quite well, um, but a lot of businesses don't want to go through the certification process because it, it seems quite costly and quite a, a long-winded process, I guess. What, what do you say to people that are thinking like that? Um, so my wife's probably the best one to answer this question. Okay. Uh, she works in this industry, although she asked me the same question. Um, it is literally about having an ethical responsibility. Um, it is about talking to people about what are the dangers of not doing this. Um, but on a more positive note, it's also about talking about what are the advantages of, of moving this way. Um, and so um, the, the hard sell and the, and the, is to talk about, uh, is talk about money and the savings and, and the, the monetary savings that can be made from, for example, using less water, using, using less electricity, being more efficient in using your building space that you don't have large amounts of open space which can't be used by people. Um, and, and then the big uh, win factor is if you design workspaces which are more effective for people, People will just be more productive. Uh, essentially, if you uh, and businesses really buy into that type of idea of, of their employees being more productive with the space that they have, mm-hmm. there are limits to this. Uh, there are physical limits where beyond which people cannot do more than they are required to do. Um, and um, and and so, I mean, we have to be cognizant of, of what those limitations are. Okay. Well, thank you. That that was great. I think. Um we, I'm so glad that there are those 78 members and the, and the team's growing because I think we need you. <laughs> we need you in our lives and we need you to keep pushing this because it is so important and it, and it will affect our lives globally. So um, I appreciate all of that, all of those insights. Well, um, from my side, thanks, Kirsty, for highlighting these issues. Uh, 
I, 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 I see it as a personal crusade, but it's a, it's a, but it's also a, it's, it's also something which, which I think there are many other people around the world which are also passionate about. And so I, I think of myself as a representative of those people too. Um, and all the excellent work that they are doing around the world. Definitely. So well, I, well, I still, I was, I was talking to Professor Alan Hedge um, last week, oh, and I was saying, nice. I was saying to him, you know, Alan, I still get called the chair lady everywhere I go, and I guess it's my personal crusade to um, educate people on ergonomics and human factors, and that it isn't just about chairs, and there's a whole other system. That. Chairs is chairs. You have, to rephrase what I was saying. Chairs are your entry point. Yes. Um, um, and Alan, uh, just on this point as well, Alan's also he's also been a great advocate for uh, ergonomics in the built environments and, and moving towards green buildings. So um, I'm sorry I didn't mention Alan um, and his colleague colleague Julie Dorsey too, uh, both up in in Ithaca in, in the United States doing great work here. Yeah, he, I mean, you, you, you all are. I think it's, I think it's again absolutely fantastic, and well, I appreciate it from an ergonomist standpoint, and I'm, I'm sure many other people will as well. But I think this information going out to a wider audience is going to be so crucial, and hopefully that can build some more. Um, what's the word? Uh, build some more traction for you. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> much appreciated. Have a great weekend. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Take Cheers. care, Andrew. Bye. Bye bye.